0: God's Word, and would you mind standing, please? The passage is from 2 Corinthians 5, 13 through 21. If we are out of our mind, it is for the sake of God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. For Christ's love compels us, because we are convinced that one died for all, and therefore all died. And he died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. So, from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. All this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting men's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us, We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. You may be seated.
1: Well, Merry Christmas. You're going to be so tired of me saying that to you by the time that this season is over. All right. Well, we're going to be starting an Advent series where we're going to be looking at uh, different passages from the New Testament where we see Jesus being referred to as being made in some respect. So for this, this morning, for example, we're going to see that 2 Corinthians 5, he has made sin for us. Uh, We're going to see next week, I believe it is 2 Corinthians 8, he was made poor for us. Uh, Bill McCurron is going to preach from Philippians 2, he was made a servant for us. Later on, we're going to look at uh, him, him, Jesus was made wisdom for us, Uh, Jesus was made the heir of all things. We're going to be looking at these different passages of scripture that talk to us about Jesus so we can spend this Christmas season meditating on who Jesus is, why he came. And the way that I'm thinking about organizing this, and you're going to see that really clearly today, uh, is through this idea that Mike Forrest mentioned last week in the sermon, uh, something that Chad has said to me a couple times, something I've heard from a number of you here since arriving at Harbor, this idea that, that Christ is uh, for, us, in us, for us, in us and through us. Uh, I'm going to use that to kind of organize at least this sermon this morning and maybe a few others uh, in this series. So I'm really excited about this because I love Christmas and I love being able to to take some time out of Acts for us to spend time focusing on who Jesus is and why he came. Um, I need to pray because I need prayer as we jump into this. So will you please join me as we do that? Heavenly Father, we... Uh, We come to you this morning celebrating uh, this first Sunday of Advent as we begin to prepare our hearts for the celebration of Christmas. And we ask that you would please be with us this morning uh, as we spend time in your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Uh, There are these two friends uh, whose names are Sarah and Esperanza. Uh, Sarah and Esperanza have been friends for a really long time. And one particular day, uh, Sarah came up to Esperanza and said, hey, I need to talk to you. I've been angry at you for weeks. And Esperanza was, you know, a little taken aback. She had no clue what had been going on. And, and uh, so Sarah says to her, you know, I, uh, a couple weeks ago you said something and it really offended me. Uh, and I just, I needed to bring that to you because I realized that I was just growing more bitter and bitter towards you. And Esperanza was was so thankful. She's like, thank you so much for coming to me. I can't, I'm sorry that this happened. And they began to work through it together. Uh, In this particular story, uh, Esperanza had no clue that she needed reconciliation. Uh, And it was Sarah coming towards her and saying, hey, there's there's a problem here that we need to deal with. Uh, Similarly, maybe we're here this morning uh, and we may not realize that we are in need of reconciliation. That God himself is saying that we need to be reconciled. That there's a problem between him and us and us and him. Uh, and now he is the first, and the thing about reconciliation is that it always requires somebody to take the first step, right? Think about it. If, if, you, if you know that there's a, a fracture in a relationship with another person, uh, if someone doesn't take the first step, what ends up happening? Things don't stay the same, right? They get worse, right? You get more resentment, more bitterness. And so someone has to take the first step in order for reconciliation to begin its process. And what the scripture teaches us is not only that we need reconciliation with God, but that he has taken the first and the second and the third and the fourth and the fifth step in order to be able to do that. And that really is what this passage is about. And Christmas is one of those steps that God is taking in order to bring reconciliation, in order to bring uh, peace and harmony and restored relationships. Uh, You know, you you think about uh, Thanksgiving and Christmas, and this is one of those seasons where we feel the weight of those fractured relationships, right? Uh, And so what God is doing is he's saying, like, he he steps into that with us through Jesus Christ. So what we're going to see this morning is this. We're going to see that... Uh, That Jesus brings reconciliation by becoming sin for us. Uh, Jesus brings reconciliation by making changes in us. And then Jesus announces reconciliation uh, through us. So that's the, the for, the in, and the through. Now, in order to get into this first point, uh, let's look with me. If you have your Bibles, you want to open them up. Uh, 2 Corinthians 5, 21. This is is the, 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 the culmination of the passage, but it's where I want to start. Verse 21, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Every culture has some way of identifying what it sees wrong with the world. Uh, So think about even in the United States, right? What what are the things that we think are wrong culturally? Probably a number of things that we could mention, but certainly, uh, you know, lack of liberty, uh, lack of personal autonomy. Those are things that our culture would say, if those things, if liberty and personal autonomy don't exist, that's a wrong that needs to be righted. Uh, Christianity is no different uh, in that it sees that there is something wrong with the world uh, and it says this is the solution that God has brought into the world. What Christianity says is wrong with the world is sin. Uh, Deborah Reinstra is a uh, theologian, and author. I think she's at Calvin College in Michigan, in Grand Rapids. Uh, and years ago, uh, she, she published this book called So Much More, which I remember reading, and her chapter on sin has just really been super helpful for me over the years. I've, I've got a number of quotes that I continually go back to because of the insights that she has on the nature of sin. <clears throat> and in that chapter, she writes that she says, sin is a shorthand term for our common tragic condition constantly exacerbated by our own malice and folly. Uh, what she's saying there I think is really insightful is that sin is something that we suffer from uh, but that's, it's something that we participate in, and we participate in it sometimes through malice, through, through things that we do that are wrong, and we know they're wrong, but we jump into them with both feet, and sometimes just because we do stupid things. Uh, that, I think, describes pretty well, at least my experience with sin, uh, and I know uh, probably for many of us as well. And so that's the fracture of the relationship, That's what happens that the Lord is bringing before us and saying, all right, this is is why reconciliation is necessary. Uh, And in comes Jesus, born in a a manger, uh, born 2,000 years ago in in the town of Bethlehem. uh, And Jesus did not know sin. Now, if you've grown up in the church, you've probably heard that more than once. But think about that. He never sinned against his mom. He never sinned against his brothers. He never sinned against the disciples when they were doing things that probably were very frustrating. Right? He never sinned against uh, you know, the, 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 the customers that were coming into his dad's carpenter shop. He never sinned against his dad. He never sinned against God the Father. Uh, now, it's not just that Jesus didn't know the term um, in the, uh, the ESV and the King James and the New American Standard Version. They translate this verse, he did not know sin. The word know there uh, is not talking about intellectual knowledge simply. It's talking about experiential, right? There was no sin in him. And this is the consistent witness, this is the consistent testimony of the New Testament. So here you see Peter, and I'm, I'm Peter, I'm sorry, here you see Paul saying that he had no sin. In 1 Peter 2.22, Peter says the same thing. Peter says he committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. John, uh, in 1 John 3.5, says in Jesus, Jesus had no sin. So here you have Paul, Peter, and John. If you take those three guys, you have the bulk of the New Testament and they're all saying Jesus had no sin. There was a story that I read years ago, um, and, uh, and I don't remember if it's a fictional story or not, but there's a story that I read years ago of these two brothers that were living in the Bay Area, uh, and the younger brother was uh, kind of spiraling down. He was involved in gambling, and his life was just really going out of control, uh, and in one particular day, he was having an argument with somebody over a gambling debt, and he murdered the person. And news came back to the older brother that, that uh, this murder had happened and he heard the story, he heard the description, he had the sinking feeling that he knew who the, who the murderer was and that it was his brother. Well, he gets home that night, um, uh, he c- gets home a couple days later, and, and sure enough, there on the floor of his room are the bloody clothes that his brother had been wearing when he committed the murder. Uh, and, and so his brother's nowhere to be found, and the police have been looking and trying to find, the, the, trying to find him. And so in this, in this act of, of love, what the older brother decides to do is he puts on the bloody clothes, uh, and he's arrested, uh, he's tried, he's convicted, and he's ultimately executed. Uh, and all this time, the younger brother is nowhere to be found. He's, he's you know, AWOL. After he hears that the older brother has been executed for what he did, he is just torn in two, and he goes to the authorities. He goes to the police and says, "I'm the one who committed that murder." And the police officer says to him in the story, he "says Well, I'm sorry. There's nothing that we can do. I mean, your brothers your brothers already uh, paid the penalty for that crime. There's nothing else that we can do. The, the crime has been paid for." Uh, now, Jesus, right, is that, that a, an illustration of the, of the theological point that Paul is making here. Jesus puts on the bloody clothes for us. That's what it means that he who had no sin became sin for us, is that he takes on the guilt. He takes on uh, our crime, the things that we did, in order for us to be uh, have the punishment of sin taken away. That's what Paul says then in verses 14 and 15. Christ's love compels us because we are convinced that one died for all and therefore all died, and he died for all. That is, Jesus died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and was raised again. And then a little bit later in verse 17, uh, Paul uh, clarifies what he's saying when he says that we're talking about those who are in Christ. And so and so, really what we're seeing here is that... that um, What God does for us in taking this first step, second step, third step towards reconciliation is that he sends Jesus, who had no sin, in order to take the penalty of sin for us so that we could then be given the righteousness of God. Now, excuse me. Uh, So the first thing that we do here is we have to ask ourselves, all right, so what, as we're going through Christmas, like, what are we celebrating? Uh, Presents, yes, love presents, right? Advent uh, readings, yes, love those. That's all wonderful and good. There's lots of cultural things that we experience during the holidays that are beautiful and good. But really, at the end of the day, like, what we're doing is we're celebrating that God came in the form of a man that Jesus was born in order to be made sin for us, in order that the reconciliation that we need could be actually accomplished. And so what that means for us is that part of the reflection that we do during the season is that Jesus died for us. Yeah, we celebrate Jesus as a baby, but we recognize that that baby has a life that ends in death, death for you and me. And so, um, how do we respond to Jesus? What's our relationship to Jesus? Have we put our faith in him? Have we trusted? Uh, do we, is, has God made Jesus sin for us because we have put our faith in him? That's the first thing. That's what Jesus does for us. Now, what does Jesus do in us? Well, interestingly, there's this, uh, there's this verse in here. Verse 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ... He, she, is a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. The idea of new creation actually uh, finds itself all the way back in the Old Testament. In the book of Isaiah, chapter 65, Isaiah talks about there being a new heavens and the new earth. The old order of things are gone, the new has come. And so what Paul is doing is he's picking up on this theme that the prophets, remember, we lit our first candle, the candle of the prophets. The prophets had been talking about this day when God's promised Savior would come and all of these things would be made new. And so what Paul is saying this is that Jesus has set in motion the wheels for things to be made new. Now, part of that new making of things is that we have a different relationship with God. We see that in uh, verse 15. He died for all. So, that those who live no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised. So, so not only are we just not living for ourselves anymore, you know, those people who are really self centered. You know, we all have a relationship probably with someone who, who doesn't recognize the degree to which they are living self, a self centered life. And if we're honest, we, we can all do that, right? part of the work of new creation that the gospel does in us is that Jesus changes us so that we are, we are more and more inclined not to think just for ourselves, but to think of other people. And, and at the core of that, he says, is that we live for him who died for us. We live for Jesus. What is that? I mean, you really, It's it's the. It's uh, remember that story when someone comes up to Jesus. One of the religious leaders comes up to Jesus and says, "What's the great? What's the best? What's the most important commandment? What does Jesus say? Love the Lord your God, love Lord your God and love your." That's here, <laughs> right? It's right here in this verse. This is the act of new creation. Now, here's the problem. I don't know about you, but I don't. I don't always feel like new creation's happening. Right? I lose my temper with my kids. I get annoyed at people. My relationship with God is you know, hot and cold. And, and I look at that and I'm like, new creation? Uh, I don't know. The tension that we see with that is actually explained for us in Scripture. Uh, where we see in Scripture that we're told that there are things that are already true of us. And yet there are also things that are not yet true of us. And so, you know, if you're, if you're at all familiar with kind of theological terminology, there's this concept that's called the already and the not yet. There are things that scripture teaches are true of us now. You are, if you're in Christ, you are a new creation. And yet, we read in Romans 8... That the creation is longing for its redemption. We read in Romans 7 that Paul says, Oh wretched man that I am, who's gonna rescue me from this body of death? There's this tension that we feel. And when we think of this tension, part of this new creation is um, it, it's part of it is, is a matter of time, right? We're still waiting for, we celebrate at Christmas time the first coming of Jesus, but we're still waiting for the second coming of Jesus. But there's also, Kate's been reading this book. Um, It's called The Church and Its Vocation. Um, And it's a book that is exploring the the theology of this one thinker, a a missionary to India, by the name of Leslie Newbigin. And and, um, she was reading a quote to me that was like, oh, this is such an interesting idea. How much of what, when we think about the the now and the not yet, like what is, what we're experiencing now versus what we're going to experience is framed by the idea of weakness, that part of what we experience now is that God, even in 2 Corinthians, uh, in the book of Second Corinthians, God says, my strength is made perfect when you're strong. It's not what it says, right? My strength is made perfect when you are weak. And in 2 Corinthians 4, he, what does it say? It says, um, hold on a second. I'm going to find it. But we have this treasure in really strong iron pots. No, we have this treasure in jars of clay. Clay pots break. We know that because you find them in archaeological digs everywhere, right? We have this treasure in jars of clay to show the surpassing power of God belong, surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. So even the change that God affects, even this new creation that God does in you and me, is a reminder to us of the weakness that we have. Because, God, brothers and sisters, like we don't bring anything to the table except our sin. So, what do we see? First of all, we see that Christ brings reconciliation by becoming sin for us. He dies on the cross. Yes, we're celebrating Advent, we're celebrating Christmas. But we cannot celebrate Christmas properly if the cross is not also in view. Because that's why Christmas is good news. So that's the first thing. The second thing that we see is that Jesus brings reconciliation by creating a change in us, and that change is new creation. It's, it's It's a reorientation to how we relate to God and how we relate to each other. But the reality is that you and I as Americans, we want to make it big and powerful and strong. And the gospel says, no, my strength is made perfect when you are weak. I don't like that. I don't want to be weak. If I'm perfectly honest with you, I don't want to be weak. I want to have the answer. I want to be able to charge the hill. I want to be able to solve the problem. Am I the only one? No. And so then Jesus announces, So that was the first point, the second point. The third point, Jesus announces reconciliation by telling people through us. Versus uh, second half of verse 19 and verse 20. Uh, and he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. What do ambassadors do? Right. ambassadors represent someone else ambassadors represent the country that they are being sent by right and they're and they're given authority by that country in order to represent the interests of that of that other nation so what is what is our ambissorial is that a word Am- ambissorial uh, what is what is it ambassadorial. Thank you, Dan. What is our ambassadorial role? What does it actually look like to be ambassadors? Let me offer you three things. Um, First of all, in order for us to remember our role as ambassadors, we need to remember what Jesus has done for us and in us. There's a story that um, I recently heard again. Uh, It uh, happens in about 1270 AD. The the Mongol ruler Kublai Khan sent ambassadors, um, and I think it was actually Marco Polo and his brother, sent them to the Pope uh, and said to them, if you send me, this is what he said, part of the letter said, send me 100 skilled men in your religion and I will be baptized. And the letter goes on to say, not only will I be baptized, but I will have all of my my subjects baptized too, so that there will be more Christians in my kingdom than there are in the West. So what do you think the Pope does when he gets this letter requesting 100 priests to go uh, to, to, um, to meet with Kublai Khan? He does nothing. 18 years later, he sends a handful of priests. And the reason is, at least this is one book that, that I was reading that was t- t- talking about the story, is because the Pope was trying to be a politician with a bunch of other interests that were going on. What I submit to you is that the Pope had forgotten his ambassadorial role. Because here you had this opportunity. Now, we don't know what would have happened. But something would have happened had he sent a hundred men, priests, to go and share the gospel with the Mongols. Can you imagine how different history might be today if they took their role of ambassadors seriously? And so what does it look like for us to drive in what Christ has done for us and in us? Well, there's a lot of different ways that that can look. Let me just offer you one that is really pertinent to where we are right now in this particular moment in the life of the church. It's Advent. Uh, Chad and Ellery uh, and others put a lot of work in putting together a really beautiful Advent guide for us. Now, the Advent guide is a tool. It's, it's not the be-all, end-all. But the, what you're doing is you're spending time in Scripture every day. Just a few minutes where you're being reminded again and again and again and again what God has done for us, what God is doing in us. Right? The first step, the second step, the third step, the fourth step, go on to, to, down the road of what it is that he's done. So So taking advantage of a season like this and doing something like an Advent guide, whether you use the one that we have online or the one that we have um, you know, the, the printed versions or whatever, something like that is a way of driving that deeper into our hearts. That's the first thing. The second thing. That we, the second way in which we can fulfill our ambassadorial role uh, is prayer. Last week, Mike Forrest, when he was preaching, uh, said something that was like, oh man, so, so cool to hear, and really like my mind was like firing about this sermon. Uh, Do you remember, if you don't remember, if you weren't here, he said that he was talking about the Lord's Prayer. And he says, you know, we pray your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And then he said, when we pray, that is one way in which God is already answering that prayer. So this afternoon, uh, you remember a few weeks ago, I talked about, hey, I'm doing these prayer walks and I invited anybody that was interested Uh, in participating in prayer walk to join me. And about a dozen people took me up on it. And so this afternoon, a bunch of us are going to go walking in the East Village, and we're going to pray, right? So so that's a way in which we're going out into the world, and and we're going to be praying, not just theoretical, but we're going to be praying for things that we're seeing, for things that we've been looking at, different needs that we know exist in these paths that we're going to take. Uh, Prayer is a really powerful way that we fulfill our ambassadorial role. And then the third thing is through spiritual conversations. Um, I talked about spiritual conversations a few weeks ago when we were looking at uh, the book of, uh, when we were in the book of Acts. And what I said there was that so often our hang-up when we're talking about having a spiritual conversation is that we think that we have to have all the answers, That the way we think of a spiritual conversation is that you've got a question and I've got to be able to come in and give the answer, the right answer, uh, really succinctly and clearly. Uh, And certainly there's an element of that, but that's certainly not where spiritual conversations begin. Spiritual conversations is us simply introducing the element of faith into conversations that we have with people and then praying that over time we'll be able to move the conversation into a direction that we'll be able to talk about deeper and deeper spiritual things. So last night, um, last night I'm working on my sermon. I get a text message from our neighbor. Hey, you want to come over for a glass of wine because our kids are going to be over at their house watching a movie. And we're like, yes, we want to come over for a glass of wine, right? And so, uh, and so, like, take advantage of the fact that it's Christmas. Uh, and so, um, you know, they're they're from other countries. And so we started talking about different Christmas traditions. And I started talking about Epiphany. That's when we celebrate the coming of the wise men in January 6th. And then, oh, yeah, in my country we do Epiphany too. Oh, yeah, in my country we do Epiphany too. And guess what? We ended up having a spiritual conversation. That simple. Now, did I present the gospel? No. But, But we've set the stage for having more spiritual conversations. That simple. That's what it looks like to be an ambassador. And the message that we have is that reconciliation is needed, and that God has taken the first step and the second, third step and the third step and the fourth step and the fifth step and the, right? in order to make that reconciliation possible. How? Because He became sin for us. Because then when we put our faith in Him, we become new creations. May not feel new creation all the time, but just because we don't feel that all the time doesn't mean it's not true. And then through us, to let other people know hey, there's this, this thing that we're celebrating this Christmas. Let me tell you what it's really about. That's, that's what we're doing here. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, uh, we come to you this morning and we thank you that you have sent your son Jesus. Uh, to be made sin for us. Uh, We thank you that he took on himself uh, our sin so that we could be reconciled to you. We thank you that you make us new creations when we put our faith, when we place our faith and trust in you and in who you are. Uh, And we confess that at times the idea of us being ambassadors is really um, scary Uh, and and we shy away from it. Um, But Lord, we ask that you would please help us to be a people that not only hear that we have this ambassadorial role, but that we we own it uh, and step into it. Help us this Christmas season, this Advent season, as we prepare for the celebration of the coming of Christ. um, Help us to fix our eyes on Jesus. Uh, In his name we pray, amen.